All right, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Revelation 19. We're looking at Revelation 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. As we uh, look here, if you bring that chart up, Chris, our overview of this series on the Ascension is, or you can see it there in your notes as well. Remember that the Ascension is a part of Christ's exaltation that began with his resurrection. But we're not focusing there because that gets all the attention. We're focusing on the ascension that results in all these different aspects of Christ's exaltation through the ascension. And so we've moved through this chart and we're here finally at the revelation of the ascended Lord. He's in heaven, ascended, but no one has seen him since he ascended. Now we're going to see him, and that's the story. And so here's the ascension question that I want to ask and answer, or you should know the answer to by now. How long does the ascended Lord remain in heaven? How long does the ascended Lord remain in heaven? And we kind of addressed this. Well, we didn't kind of address it. We addressed it early on when we talked about his session. But turn your Bibles. Well, yeah, turn your Bibles, Psalm 110. Yeah, I tricked you, didn't I? So sorry about that. Turn your Bibles, Psalm 110. And uh, let's just look at verses 1 through 3, because this is a key passage for the ascension. And I think you know. How long does the ascended Lord remain in heaven? Yes, until what, Carmen? Until the Father says so. And what will the Father do at that time? Okay, yeah, he's going to put his enemies under the feet of Christ. So notice Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, And this is David speaking. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, you want to circle that word until, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then notice verses 2 and 3, because we're going to see the fulfillment of this. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. They will just rise up with you to conquer your enemies. Now in Luke chapter 20, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and applies it to himself. Here's what he says. Then he said to them, how is it that they say... The Christ is David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord. Instead of saying the Lord said to my son, he says, No, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him the Lord, or calls him Lord. How is he his son? Well, the answer to that question is, The incarnation. Jesus is both the son of David and the son of God. Therefore, he is David's son, humanly, but he's David's Lord as the divine 
Lord. And then in Acts chapter 2, 32 through 36, Peter makes the application of Psalm 110 to Jesus Christ. And so turn there in your Bibles too. Acts chapter 2, 32. Acts chapter 2, 32 through 36. Because this is another key passage, kind of wraps everything that we have been talking about. Acts chapter 2, 32. Preaching regarding Jesus, preaching to the Jews of Jerusalem, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, there's the exaltation, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, there's the session at the right hand, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that which you see and hear. There's the, what theologians call the procession, the sending forth of the Spirit by the ascended. Then he, by the ascended Lord. Then he says, for it was not David, and then he just flat says it, who's ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How long? What's verse 35 say? Not forever. Until I make your enemies a what? A footstool for your what? For your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The utter humiliation reversed in the ultimate exaltation. So, how long does the ascended Lord remain in heaven at the right hand? The answer is until the time when the Father makes his enemies his what? His footstool. So it's not, he's not there forever. He's there until, until the time. What time? Only the, as Carmen said, only the Father knows. That's Acts 1.6. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. All right? Between the ascension and the final revelation, we're to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we support missionaries at our church. That's why we give to faith promise. Because this is God's concern at this time. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. And that's what he's doing now. But one day it's going to happen. So now back to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Here's the fulfillment. The until has become right now. The until is about to be fulfilled. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. You see, let me stop right there. This vision 
we're going to see in a moment, reminds us of the first vision in Revelation that we saw last week. And he was sanctifying his church. Why? Because they need to come with him in white hot holiness like he is holy. Because they are going to be a part of his army. They were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it he may strike the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. The Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we should shout, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! There it is. There it is. Now, let me make four quick observations as we just based on what we just read. First of all, Jesus the God man descended in his humiliation to ascend in his exaltation, to descend again as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you want to think about this. He descended, incarnation, for humiliation. He ascended, resurrection, and exaltation. But he will descend again as King of kings and Lord of lords. Second observation. Having sanctified his church... The ascended king descends to subdue his enemies. He's going to subdue his enemies and sit on David's throne until the final judgment before the new creation. So last week we saw the first vision was to sanctify his church. Now, having sanctified his church, he's now coming to earth to subdue His enemies. And basically the rest of Revelation, the book of Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22 is laying out how he's going to subdue his enemies. We're not going to cover all that today. We're just looking at the vision. Third, Jesus will descend just as he ascended. He will descend just as he ascended. This ties back. So not only does this vision tie back to the first vision of Revelation 1, this vision ties all the way back to Acts chapter 1, the very first passage we looked at in this series, where he went up, and what did the angel say to the apostles? That he will come back just as you saw him ascend. And so in this prophecy, this fulfillment, what happened there? On a specific day and time, he went up. There will be a specific day and time when he comes back. He went up bodily in the same body that he was born in, he was crucified in, he was raised in, he was ascended in. That same body, now glorified, but still the same body, is going to physically touch down. And it's going to be locally. Where did he geographically leave from? In Acts 1. Do you remember? Where did the ascension, what mountain did he rise up from? The Mount of Olives. And it's going to be the same local, geographical. Then he left physically from the earth, from the Mount of Olives to heaven. Now he's going to come from heaven back to the Mount of Olives, just as he ascended. And 
just as then it was visible, it's going to be visible to the whole world. And so there's connections here. The fourth observation is this. The book of Revelation opens last week, chapter 1, 12 through 16, and closes here in 19 with a vision of the exalted Christ as judge. As judge. In the first vision, he cleansed and consecrated his people. In the second vision, he comes to conquer and condemn his enemies. You can't have one Jesus without the other. You, this is Jesus. And he doesn't, do the, he doesn't flip a switch where he goes from compassion to condemnation. It's his character. The same compassionate Savior is the judge who condemns. That's the miracle of mercy. And the same judge that we're going to see condemns the nations is the same judge who in compassion cleanses his church, challenges them to live pure lives, to be lampstand witnesses to the same people so they won't be judged. Does, does this make sense? You start playing with the character of God or of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and you start separating his character out into categories. I like this. I don't like this about him. Then you, don't, you have a God of your own making, made in your own image. This is our God. And the vision of Revelation, it's, it's amazing. The book of Revelation begins with a vision of redemption of Jesus Christ, and it ends with a vision of retribution by Jesus Christ. We should compare the two visions, all right? We're not going to go into this detail, but think, do you see the similarities from last week? This is the same Jesus, no longer standing among the churches, but coming with his church to conquer his enemies on white horses. He's still the faithful and true judge who who judges righteously, but no longer judging to sanctify his people. Now he's judging to subdue his enemies. His eyes are still burning with penetrating fire, but now the judgment is not for repentance, but for wrath. His head and hair previously shone with white-hot holiness as the head of the church to sanctify them. Now his head is still holy and white-hot, but it has many crowns, his sovereign authority over the nations of the earth. His robe that went down to his feet is now dipped in the blood of his enemies. Same robe, same priest, same judge. The church is no longer pictured here as lampstands to witness, but as warriors to wage war with the coming warrior. The, his mouth is still a sharp sword, but no longer to correct and comfort his church, but to condemn and conquer his enemies. Same one. The prophet and the priest is now fully revealed on earth as the eternal king of kings and lord of lords. And he has a name that no one knows. The lost cannot control him. The lost cannot stop him. They cannot cry out to him. The time of salvation has passed. It's the time of wrath. And we see that Christ's final exaltation 
is his revelation, his final exaltation, is his revelation at the second coming to conquer. Do you have that, Chris? To conquer God's enemies and vindicate God's people. So we've compared these visions, but his final exaltation is a revelation of all that we have been studying. The world does not see him. Only believers do. And now they're going to see him. And he's going to wage war with God's enemies in order to vindicate God's people who have been persecuted, who have suffered, who have witnessed. And when they witnessed, they were mocked. Some lost their jobs. Some lost their families. And they did it for Christ. And they said, where's the reward? Where's the vindication? Where... Was it worth it? And it will be revealed. And it's fascinating to compare Revelation 4.1 with 19.11. Because this whole vision of judgment opens in Revelation 4.1. John sees a door open in heaven. And he's raptured up into heaven to see the coming judgment. Come up here, John. The door is open. But now in Revelation 19.11... Heaven is open wide, not to let people in, but to let out the armies of heaven to judge. So now is the time of the open door. If you don't know Christ, now's the time. The door is open. Come up. Come see. Come be saved. Because there's coming a time when heaven's going to open, not to let in, but to let out the wrath of God. That's just amazing to me. So this morning, what I want us to do is to see the revelation of the final exaltation of God's loyal warrior, because that's the vision that we have. The final exaltation of the God's loyal warrior. So in this study of the ascension, what I want you to understand is The ascension begins with him disappearing and being hidden. The ascension ends with the revelation of the ascended Lord. And that's what the second coming is all about. So let's take a look at it. Notice this quote by uh, biblical scholar Robert Mounts. Nowhere in, in Revelation is the victorious Christ portrayed in symbols and language more likely to convince the reader that in spite of Satan's best efforts, God and the Lamb will emerge triumphant in the end. Amen? He wins in the end. And we need to remember that. Were you you tempted by Satan this week? Did you feel spiritual warfare this week? As believers, we ought to. Well, guess what? We have one who is going to be victorious. So let's look at uh, five aspects of this. The first is this, the loyal warrior is worthy to judge and wage holy war. He is worthy to judge and wage holy war. So the question is, who does Jesus think he is to judge other people? Who does he think he is to judge other people? And the first thing that we learn in this vision is that he's worthy to judge and to wage holy war. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Faithful and true, a combination of character qualities that's common in the Old Testament. Faithful and true means that he is reliable and loyal to God. He is true in his character. He is true in his integrity. He's not a hypocrite. He's sincere in his motives. And he can be relied on to do what God desires. As the last Adam, truly Jesus is the only human being worthy to judge someone else. We need to remember that. The only person worthy to judge someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. For only he has been sinlessly, perfectly faithful and true. So what does this tell us? Well, first of all, the judge's character is worthy. His character is worthy. He is worthy to judge. He alone is worthy in Revelation Revelation 5. He alone is worthy to open the seven seals that will pour out judgment. And here, as he comes on the earth to execute that judgment, we're reminded again by God, he is worthy. He is worthy. He alone is worthy to save and worthy to judge. He alone is worthy to convert and to condemn. He alone is worthy to grant mercy to none that deserve it and to pour out wrath on all who do deserve it. You see, we're all the undeserving. You realize that, don't you? See, he's worthy to grant mercy to those that don't deserve it and to execute judgment on the rest who do. Secondly, the judge's condemnation is holy. God wants us to see that his judgments that will be poured out in the final second coming and in the rest of the book of Revelation, he wants us to see that these are righteous. His condemnation is holy. See, we, we think, our culture thinks, well, no, we don't. We th- we, basically, we like being the judge. And the people that we think need to be condemned, we want them to be condemned to the uttermost. The people that we think compassion, we don't care what they did. We like them. We want them to have compassion. That is not worthy judgment. He judges in a manner that is always right in relation to God's standards, right in relation to other people. Listen to Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it, all of creation. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Why? They will sing before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The judge is worthy, and he will make the right decisions. Isn't it interesting? Last week we talked about Christ as judge of his people, and then we went upstairs and heard a psalm about Christ the judge of the earth. 
And here we see him coming with his church to judge the earth. And he is worthy to wage holy war. So, second observation is this, or second lesson from this is this. The loyal loyal warrior, because he's worthy, the loyal warrior has all authority to judge all the earth. The loyal warrior, as a kid I had speech impediments with R's and L's, so that's a mouthful for me. All authority to judge all the earth. So, Look at verse 12 through 13. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. There we see five reasons why for four. Let's see, how many do I have? Four reasons. Five. I got five. Five characteristics. Why does he have all authority to judge? Number one. He judges all because he sees all. He judges all because he sees all. No one, here's the penetrate, remember the penetrating eyes from last week? Eyes to cleanse his church. Now it's eyes that will condemn those who have rejected him. And he sees it all. Nothing has been missed. Nothing escapes. And he will vindicate He has seen every wrong done to his people, and he will make it right. Every prophet that was killed for prophesying Christ's coming will be vindicated. Every martyr, from the first martyr Abel, to the first martyr of the church Stephen, to the last unknown martyr right before he comes... That And all the people who have given their life that no book is written about, no movie is made about them, he has not missed a drop of their blood. That is good news. That is just great news. He's worthy of our faithfulness. And he doesn't miss a thing when he sees people mocking us and persecuting us for the gospel. Everything has been seen. And everyone will be judged, for the time of God's mercy has passed. Secondly, he judges all because he's over all. He's got a head that has many crowns. In other words, all the crowns of the earth are piled up on his head. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't walking around with, you know, a thousand crowns on his head. It's symbolic. It's symbolic that he has all authority. Now, think about this. Right before his ascension, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and fulfill the great commission. Now he's saying, All authority is still given to me, not for a great commission, but for a great conquest of this planet. I will come and rule, and I will judge those who have rejected my rule. Thirdly, he judges all because he's under none. He judges all because he's... This is the flip side of all the crowns. You say, what's the flip side of all the crowns? He has a name written on him which no one knows. So what's the first thing? When you read that, what is the first thing people do? What's the first question they ask? What's the name? What's the name? And there's no lack of 
print, you know, of, of ink spilled and telling you. Some, some say it's the holy name of Yahweh, the I am God. Others say it's the name above all names in Philippians 2, Lord. Others say it's that blessed name of Jesus, Yahweh saves. But only Jesus knows. And he's not telling. It's the name that is not known. What's the point of that? Here's the point. In that culture and at that time, and it's still true today, that if you knew someone's name, it was you could exercise authority in their name. You could call down their name. Right now we have a scandal going on in politics, like we seem to always have now, of, uh, of someone saying, hey, uh, I, I will take, if, if you don't give me this bribe money, if you don't give me this money, I'm going to... Say, I'm I'm, I'm bringing everybody that I know against you. What's that person saying? He's saying, I I know all these names. And I'm going to use their authority against you. Well, guess what? You can't do that with Jesus. He's not at anyone's bidding. You can't use his name to curse someone or bless someone. He does the cursing and blessing. You can't use his name as a magic formula to get what you want. You know, sometimes we pray in Jesus' name like it's a magic formula, like we're rubbing a genie's lamp. But really what we're saying in Jesus' name is, your Lord, and what I just prayed, your will be done, not mine. And so you can't manipulate Jesus. That's the idea. He is under none. No one knows his name. Third, uh, fourthly, he judges all because he has sacrificed all. His robe is dipped in blood. He judges all because he sacrificed all. Now, I gave you a handout. The question is, why is his robe dipped in blood and whose blood is it? Okay. So on this handout, I had to do this little study to figure this out. And I figured, why leave it just on my computer? Here, you can have it. Okay. So this is a whole lesson on blood in the book of Revelation. And it was amazing to learn this. So he has a robe dipped in blood. And here's the answer to whose blood. It's the blood of his enemies that he's about to conquer. But I would say to you, it's also his own blood that he sacrificed for sinners who rebel against him. In the book of Revelation, the first mention of blood is the blood he shed for sinners. And in the book of Revelation, the last mention of blood is right here. And it's the blood shed of his enemies who rejected his redemption. Isn't that beautiful? And you know why he's judged? One of the reasons why he's judging is because the enemies of Christ have shed the blood of his faithful witnesses. Blood is all throughout this book. He is coming with the blood But here's what I want you to see out of that. Here's what I took away from that. We can read this and we can think, oh, what a vengeful. This just seems like blind revenge. This looks like an angry God. Well, he is angry. He's angry against sin. And he's angry against sinners. But understand, he first shed his own blood for sinners. So this is not blind vengeance. This isn't cold-blooded revenge. It's holy vindication by a merciful and just God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. He shed his blood before he shed the blood of others. That's who our God is. What a God. Fifthly, he judges because he is the living word of God. It's interesting in this vision, the way Christ conquers, we're going to see next, is through the sword of his mouth, which is the word of God. But he isn't just memorizing and repeating God's word. He is the living word. And because he's the living word, he can't help but judge because God's word says there's judgment. As the living word, he can't help but save because God's word says there's salvation for those who repent. He's the living word and he carries out the will of God. So, third, the third idea that we see here is that the lawyer, loyal warrior wages war with his holy servants. He moves to say in verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. He kind of just throws this in. And to really explain all this and look at that would take a whole lesson. But he just wants to remind us, because he already mentioned this in verse 11. And he's mentioning it again in the middle of this. And I think what he's saying is this. I'm not going to judge. I haven't judged the whole world. There is the church. There is Israel that I have called out of the world. There is with me redeemed image bearers who identify with my salvation and who will rejoice in my judgment. I think uh, here, when we get done with this series, I'm going to do one lesson on why do God's people rejoice in the judgment of others? Because we just read the hallelujah, well, we didn't read it, but right before this, you have the hallelujah, the, the only place in the New Testament where hallelujah is mentioned literally, and it's a fourfold hallelujah chorus that Christ is coming to judge. So here we are with him. And this is why judgment must begin with the house of God, because folks, we should be living pure lives now because one day we're going to judge in holiness the lost of this world. We're going to take part in that. Well, how hypocritical to be living sinful lives now and then ride a right horse into judgment of sinners. But he didn't redeem us to remain in our sins. He didn't redeem me to remain in my sins. He declared me righteous so that I could progressively become righteous so that one day I would be glorified and be sinlessly righteous. And that's true for all of us. And so here in this vision, we are clothed in fine linen that was given to us. That's the righteousness of Christ. And we're riding a white horse just like he is. And that white horse speaks of conquest. We are with him in this conquest. They're united with him. But please understand, look in this vision. You'll notice we don't do the fighting. He does. And he does it with the word of his mouth. 
So we're not there saying, we're better than the sinners of this world. Let's go beat some heads together. No, we're following His judgment. We're following as He speaks the word because only He is worthy. But we're united with Him. And it's a good reminder, and I wanted, I wanted to make this point. It's a good reminder that we as the church don't wage holy war. Muslims wage holy war. The Quran commands it, and loyal Muslims carry that out. During the Crusades, the Roman Catholic Church waged holy war in the Middle East against Muslims. But biblically, the church of the living God does not wage holy war. It's Christ's war to wage, and he will wage it when he comes. And we'll follow with him, and we'll be a part of it, but we don't do that now, folks. What do we do now? Show compassion, and what do we share? We share the gospel. We declare the king is coming. But you can be a part of his army. You can be a part of his people. You can be forgiven. We wage war not physically. God's kingdom is not of this world. He'll bring it in, and when he does, we'll be with him. Fourth principle I want you to see from this vision. How does the loyal warrior wage war the loyal warrior executes the divine judgment of god almighty he executes divine that's why we don't wage holy war that's why we don't take part in the crusades we we confess the crusades were sinful and wrong we confess that christian nationalism where we're gonna we're gonna rule over others through the government as Christians. That's, that's not our calling. He is the one that executes divine judgment. So notice verse 14. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, who is the Almighty. Three things I want you to see. How does he execute this? Number one, the sharp sword in his mouth executes the divine will of God. The sharp sword. Folks, the battle has always been, it's always been over this book, and the battle is always won by this book. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. How was your time in God's Word this week? I ask that not to guilt you, but perhaps to goad you into getting into this book. Is your Bible dusty? Is your sword rusty? Have you been using the Word of God? Because this is how the divine will is accomplished. It's by knowing God's Word. God bless your mom, Dustin, visiting Leonard there in hospice. And I wanted to read to him. Uh, this passage of scripture. And before I could even, I, I started reading it and I couldn't even finish and Shirley's just quoting it off. So I said, well, I'll just close this and I'll let you just quote that passage. Internalize that word of God so that when you face the death of a loved one, when you face your own death, so when you're tempted, you have resources, you have weapons, the word of God. 
You can't know the living word without the written word, and you'll never understand the written word without the living word. Are you in the book? Secondly, the iron rod in his hand executes the divine justice of God. It's interesting. This rod is, his scepter is a shepherd's rod. Shepherds had a crook, which was a long with a crook on it. And when Rene was straying away, he would take the crook around his neck and pull him back to say, hey, don't go over that cliff. Come back, come back. But then he also had a rod because wolves would come and attack the sheep. And the rod was a blunt enter, and he would beat the enemies back of the sheep. Well, here, it's an iron rod, not wooden. It ain't going to break. It's not going to break. Whatever it hits is going to break. And it's a rod of iron. Again, ministering to saints who are dying. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This rod has no comfort. It is merely condemnation. And he will beat his enemies into submission, into actually condemnation in eternal hell because they did not bend the knee. When they heard the gospel, they did not bend the knee to the God who created them. And then, thirdly, the treading grapes with his feet. Now we're back to the feet. Executes divine wrath. The feet of Christ are important in these visions. Why? Because what was the promise of Psalm 110? Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies, a footstool for your feet. And now these feet are like the treading of the grapes. And, you know, I always think of, I love Lucy. I'm old enough to do that, sorry. But the treading of the grapes is not funny. It's serious. And the blood would get up on to your robe. That's why the robe is dipped in blood, because he's treading on the unbelievers both physically and spiritually. And you know why he gets why he is able to do that because God is almighty and we are not. Beloved, this is a hard message to teach. I feel not in this room as much, but you feel the pressure of our culture. We are a self-asserting people. Not just Americans, sinners. This whole world is shaking the fist at God's righteous standards. This whole world is rejecting, ignoring, and turning their backs on His beloved Savior. And God is almighty. And He is long-suffering. But there's an end to his long suffering. There's an end to his mercy to the lost. And there's coming a day when he will exert his almighty wrath. And that day is coming. Folks, let's not go this week looking at unbelievers and, and thinking, ah, pitying them in the sense of, well, you know, they're not as righteous as me. No, no, no. We're all sinners saved by grace. But, folks, they're headed for eternal hell. They are headed for eternal hell just as we were. And only you and I sharing the gospel makes the difference. So, yeah. Very important. Last one. 
What is the purpose of this great day of wrath? The, lawyer, the loyal warrior establishes his kingdom on earth. On this day, our prayers, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boom! It's going to happen. And it's going to happen through our prayers, not us fighting the lost, right? Zach teaches about the Crusades. They were brutal. They were they were bloody, and they were done in the name of Christ, but they weren't biblical, right? And that's not, we're going to be on our knees, and we're sharing the gospel, but someday those prayers, in fact, in the book of Revelation, I've taught you this before, there's a, there's a vision where he takes the censers, which has the incense, which represent the prayers of the saints, and the angels fling that around. I, I, I see it like a shot put. And he's flinging that thing around. If you've been to Roman Catholic worship, the priests do sling these things around. And he's going to sling it, and he's going to throw the prayers of the saints down onto the earth. And then it says, his kingdom comes. And that's why he's judging. He's judging because this earth has been in rebellion against him. And American presidents think they rule the world. European Union thinks they rule the world. Communist China and Russia think they rule the world. And innumerable suffering has taken place, and most of all, against his church. And one day, that's going to come to an end. And we ought to say, what? Hallelujah! We should be excited by that. And so the loyal warrior is going to subdue his enemies, and he's going to do it to sit on David's throne for a thousand years, fulfilling all of God's promises to not only Israel, but to the Gentile nations and to his church, his bride. And so the rest of Revelation lays out the coming of the kingdom. A thousand years, the battle of Armageddon, where the blood will flow up to the horse's bridle. The millennial kingdom where Christ will rule and Satan is chained, not just minorly, but in the abyss. Then Satan is released and there's a final rebellion against Christ's kingdom and his rule. And comes the final judgment in the lake of fire where the beast, the false prophet, the antichrist, and all unbelievers will suffer eternal conscious torment. And the new creation will be brought in with one people. While Israel and church are still distinct, they are the one people of God. And I've taught you that God's kingdom is God's presence with God's people in God's place through God's person, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, by God's power, which is the word and the spirit, for God's purpose, which is the glory of God and the good of his people. And you know what they say all through Revelation? We give thanks, O Lord, the Almighty, who are and who were, and because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Revelation 15, 3, And they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And here in 19, 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful if you know Him. It's going to be horrible if you don't. Now is the time. So, look up the coming, look up to the coming loyal warrior. Live out his message. Live out his mission because he wins in the end. Amen? And that's going to be the final revelation of his ascension. Will you be, well, we will all be there. The question is, which side will you be on? Think of one person. One person this week that you can share the gospel with. We have our computer techie. I got a new laptop, so I spent a whole day with our computer guy, Brian, and, and got to share the gospel with him. But also heartbreaking to hear the thinking regarding God, regarding the Bible, regarding salvation. But you keep praying and you keep sharing. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this sobering revelation of you as a conquering judge, as a loyal warrior carrying out divine wrath. And Lord, it should humble our hearts and we should be grateful for the gospel that has saved us, not because of what we've done, but because of who you are and what you have done. Lord, help us if we're struggling with secret sin and we're in bondage to habitual neglect of our Bible, that we would confess, we would repent, and we would rely on your Spirit and get accountability to live the lives that are one day going to be manifested as we ride in fine linen on these white horses. And most of all, Lord, we pray for the gospel, these churches in in, uh, in Bolivia, we pray for our witness this week. We pray for loved ones in our own families that don't know Christ. May your gospel penetrate hearts. May your gospel change hearts like you've changed our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.